If you're new to Willow Park Church and our network, you'll realize uh, that we are teaching a series through Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8, as we look at it, uh, last week I shared part 2 of uh, the first two verses. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, you won't know this, but the early Bible translators then added a, a verse that we have later taken out. It said, it took the verse from verse 4 and moved it up there and said, for those that walk in the Spirit. Because the early scribe was struggling to, to come to terms even then with the idea that there is absolutely no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And what we love to do is, like that early scribe, we like to at least put a little bit of work into our salvation. So, for those that walk in the Spirit. In other words, if you don't walk in the Spirit, then you're going to be condemned. And, and later, as, as we uh, were able to look at the ancient text, and really, as we move forward, really, that, that was, was back down into verse 4. But we have this uh, uh, relationship that we always feel like we have to work towards our salvation rather than salvation being a great gift of God. And, and there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You are free. And you may be new to Christianity, you may not understand, and I'm going to try and unpack some theological truths to you in the next two verses, but the very essence is that there's nothing you can do to save yourself, but the Spirit comes into your life and, and sets us free from all of the laws and the curses and the bondage of sin and slavery and death and Satan that wraps our lives up. That's what he does. He sets us free. Christianity is a religion of revelation and a religion of utter freedom in Christ Jesus. But there we have verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now, this is a fabulous two verses. First of all, a little point. In these two verses, we have the great Trinitarian view of God exploding from these verses. You know, you may have a knock on the door and somebody may knock on the door and try and tell you that the Trinity does not exist. But let me tell you, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God in one exists. And the Trinity is so fundamental to who we are because the Trinity love each other. They defer to each other. They are committed to each other. They commune to each other. For all of eternity, we have had a God in three parts that is one who knows what true love is 
because he is not isolated, but in the mystery of the Trinity. And here we see the Trinity exploding from these two verses. We have God, we have Jesus, and we have the Holy Spirit present right here in Pauline theology. It's fantastic. So what is the battle going on here? Well, Paul is simply saying to us, religion is not enough for us. We need more. And when he talks about religion, he's not just saying there is now an alternative way, that here is religion and here is the activities and the good works that we do and all the fine things, and here is now the Jesus way, which is an alternative way, not an alternative way at all. It is supremely superior in the way that Christ has presented his way to this world. The Cypress Mountains are beautiful in southern Saskatchewan. I love them. They are good to walk. They're amazing to enjoy. They are incredible. But if you compare them to Banff and Jasper and the mountains in the Rocky Mountains, then, then they're, a little, they're lacking a little bit. The Cypress Mountains make you go, oh, this is nice. Let me run through the meadows, except in the winter where you die of uh, exposure. Uh, But when you drive into Jasper and Banff, it takes your breath away. And one could argue that that it's not an alternative, it is superior. And the way that Christ came into this world brought that superior change to this idea that he's offering us not religion, but he's offering us life in this journey with, with Christ. See, religion says stay within these lines. Religion says do these activities. Religion says if you step over this line, you are going to be in trouble. Do not trespass. Do not go over this line. Because if you fail or you do something wrong, there is somebody there with a great 12 bore shotgun waiting to shoot you in the bottom. And suddenly, you know this. And I love Canadians. But you do love your do not trespass signs. (laughs) Go Black Mountain. People have hand-painted signs on that crown land that says do not trespass. Do not trespass or you will die. Do not trespass or a great plague will come upon you. Well, you're talking to an Englishman. That land's owned by the Queen. And so... It's who owns it, it makes a difference. Crown property. But we go and we say, don't trespass. And this is what religion does. Religion is a game of trespassing. It's a game of staying these lines. Be like this, be good, work hard, pedal more, do this. But the one thing that religion does not do is change the heart of a man. The one thing that religion does not do is turn somebody who is lost and broken like Terry into somebody who has a most beautiful and stunning story. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Either way with words. He said that the most mundane, boring individual, when transformed by Christ can become so compelling, so amazing, that one is almost tempted to worship them. Wow. 
He's got away with words, doesn't he? But what he's actually saying is, the old life of the fallen, broken man is so nothing compared to what God can do in the life of a human being. See, Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist in the American 1750s, preached a great message. And one of his most famous sermons, he preached about the miracle, the greatest miracle. And what is the greatest miracle? He is quoted as saying that you may look at the cosmos, you may look at creation, you may look at the world, you may look at the Milky Way and the beauty and amazing. And and these days we can look at creation. Who hasn't watched the BBC Uh, documentaries on on the beauty of this world and the seas and the oceans and, and nature. But he says, creation is not the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle is this, that after the fall of humanity, God put a plan in place to save your soul and to save my soul. This is the mega miracle of God. Think about that. You are a mega miracle. I love that word, mega. Don't even know if it's a real word. But I love it. I love it that you are a mega miracle because God has redeemed your soul, because your sins have been forgiven, because the law of sin has been broken, because you have been set free. This is the greatest miracle, the mega miracle that makes all the difference within our lives. Because you know what sin does. Sin is like a vile acid that burns through lives. That's what Terry was experiencing. He was experiencing the power of sin that was burning through his life, burning through his marriage, burning through his his walk in every area, was driving him to Knox Mountain where he was considering the worst decision that anybody can make. At that moment... Because the acid of sin, and yet I know that the acid of sin burnt through my life and destroyed me, and yet there was a day when I arrived as a vagabond, as a refugee, a spiritual refugee with no home, no place, no identity, no hope. But when I met the power of the gospel that declares I am not condemned, I was welcomed into the new kingdom, into a new nation of God that gave me the identity that gave me hope, that changed my life. And this is what Paul's trying to communicate to us, dear friends. He's trying to tell us that the game of religion does not work and the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, working together in conjunction, did the mega miracle of sending the Son to die for us and that you and I are part of that great mega miracle. So I want to encourage you. If you wake up in the morning, you're feeling miserable, look in the mirror and say, I am a mega miracle. I know that sounds a little American, but um, that's all right. A little bit's good for you. I need that, being a very um, reserved Englishman. But for what the law was powerless to do because of it was weakened by the flesh. So what was the law powerless to do? What was the law powerless to do? 
The answer to this question is that I think the answer is in Paul and him saying, I know that those regulations, those steps, those hoops of of activity. He was a Pharisee. Not only did he follow the Torah, but he followed 700 extra laws. If you saw him walking down the road, he would be walking down the road speaking certain prayers day and night. He would wash his hands in a certain way. He would associate with this group of people, but he would not associate with that group of people. He was a pious, religious man who understood the laws of God and the laws of the Pharisees. And yet he says the law could not achieve. And we're introduced to this little word in the Greek, flesh. The Bible commentators and and the great translators have struggled over the word flesh for a long time. Because when we think of flesh, we think of flesh. We think of just our body, our body parts, the way we're made. Our body image, perhaps. The things that we do in the flesh. So we can boil it down to something less. And yet it means so much more in the Greek. But they've struggled to find a way to put it in a succinct uh, sentence. So they've brought it back to flesh. The essence of flesh is the inner motivation of a man. It's your essence. It's your nature. It's what goes on inside. And what I believe Paul realized was that for all of the religious goodness, for all of the religious activity, for all of the pious and the good approach to life, he knew that there was a problem in his flesh, that he was still full of hatred, that he was still full of ego, that he was still full of anger, that he was still full of bitterness. He was still a man who was corrupt inside in his very nature. And this is what the word flesh means, is that the law could not transform an inner life of a human being where we know in our darkest lives that we are corrupt. Your anger is out of control, but you don't know how to deal with it. And you're always arguing in your family. How do Christians argue? Well, we close the window so the neighbours don't hear. (laughs) True? But you don't need to close the window so the neighbours don't hear. You need to close down the power of sin within your life. Because the law and religion cannot do it. And Paul saw that it is the issue that what can redeem the very darkness of my flesh. So, the second question we're presented with from this text is this. Um, Why was he so incapable? What was the law stopping, but why was he so incapable of changing? Well, the reason he was so incapable was that it comes back again to the word flesh. And the flesh is because... The very nature of flesh is those inner desires that we have to do things, to betray, to hurt, to commit sin, to to give in to what you could call the wild 
stallion or the wild horse of our character that we cannot tame. And it was powerless because it offered nothing. It offered no, no freedom because we knew that still what I want to do, as he famously wrote in, in, in chapter 7, what I want to do, I don't do, but what I do do is what I do not want to do. And there's a battle of the inner flesh that is taking in place in my life. It makes me hurt my family. It makes me lose my temper. It makes me betray and commit infidelity. It makes me be inappropriate in what I look at. It makes me feel hurtful and, and, and moody inside. It's like a beautiful, my life is like a beautiful pond that is crystal clear. But if you come with a stick and you start to poke me, the mud and the garbage comes up. The mud and the garbage. And what Paul is saying is this, whether you are the Archbishop of Canterbury or you are Hugh Hefner, neither way, you still need the grace of God because you may be a playboy or you may be a Pharisee, but you need the grace of God to change your life. It's not about whether you're a playboy or a Pharisee because many of us are recovering Pharisees anyway. We find it easier to be more religious and to live religiously and to act religiously and to play the great game of religious snakes and ladders. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I'm climbing to the top. Oh, yes, I haven't sinned. I've done everything right. I'm good. Oh, I failed. Back to the bottom. I've got to be good, I've got to be good, I've got to be good, I've got to be good. No, for there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I am a recovered Pharisee, I am a recovered playboy. Wherever I am, it is the grace of God that has set me free. Religion. Religion messes us up. Religious messes up... Nations, religion causes war. You know, in 1572, August 23rd, there was a battle between the Catholics and the Protestants. The Protestants were preaching the love of God and the grace of God changes the world and we need to hold on to the love of God. And the Catholics were preaching... God loves us, but we need to do good works to attain eternal life. These two theological differences clashed, and in one day, on the 23rd of August, more people were killed in that religious battle than the whole of the Roman Empire martyred Christians on that day. That's what religion does. But relationship, the beauty of God the power of the Spirit, the presence of Christ, his walk with us in our lives turns us from murderous religious people into people that are full of the love of Christ. We're not into religion, we live in a living relationship with Christ. So, 
What did the law fail to do? The answer is, it failed to transform the inner heart. Why did it fail to transform the inner heart? Because it did not offer an answer to the problem of the wild horse within us. So, what was God's response to dealing with that in our life? And the response is here. Because... I was weakened by the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the inner man. Because Jesus came. Now notice this beautiful word, likeness. Again, we have the incarnation, the work of the Trinity at work. Likeness. Jesus looked like man, walked amongst man, but he was different in one way. He was a man who was not corrupted by the sin of Adam. And therefore, he was, had a likeness of humanity, but he had the perfection and the glory and the blood of heaven running through him. So what does this mean? It means that when he came in likeness and lived amongst us, he didn't step away from us. He didn't wear a big plastic suit with big plastic um, gloves on because there was some pollution in the world and walked around with, with technical medical instruments and stand away from us and do the operation on humanity so that he doesn't get polluted by us. No, God came into the world, he in his likeness, he walked amongst us, he took on the sins of the world and became the ultimate sacrifice for all of our sins in this world. (coughs) He became the sin offering. We know the sin offerings from scripture, many of you do. That for, for centuries it was a lamb, it was the blood of a a bull, it was the activity in the temple, it was the activity that took place, the continuous flow. And many of us think that actually once Christ died upon the cross, that was the sacrifice done. He achieved the task, but the results of that sacrificial moment are still flowing throughout eternity and flowing throughout history and working in our lives to this very day because of what he did upon the cross you and I can be forgiven you and I can be free you and I can have life and you and I can know what it is to have the likeness of Christ within our lives that's the change that he came to transform our lives as a one sin offering that is continually to work to this day. In other words, all that you've done wrong, all that you've battled with, all that you have, you feel the guilt of, that inner flesh that makes you the miserable person you are to live with, that inner flesh that causes you to to grind thoughts over and over in your mind, that inner flesh, he wants to transform you into the likeness of God. Religion will not transform you. So what will transform you finally? 
The answer is in verse 4. In order that the righteousness requirements of the law might be fully met in us. So all of the law, all of the requirements, all of the activities, all of those sacrifices, all of that good activity has now been met in Jesus Christ and because we are in Jesus, not in Adam, we have we met all the requirements of the law through Jesus Christ. So I'm forgiven. But who do not live according to the flesh, but here it is, but according to the Spirit. It is the work of of the Spirit within your life that transforms your inner being. It's the work of the Spirit that takes the playboy and turns him into a, a servant of Christ. It is the work of the Spirit that takes a judgmental religious Pharisee and turns him into a great missionary. It is the work of the Spirit, or to walk in the Spirit, or to experience the Spirit. As Jeremiah 31, 33 says, the Lord comes and writes his law on your heart. He transforms our inner lives. And this is why we must be a people of the Spirit. We cannot be a people of the Spirit. We need to seek the Spirit's presence. We need to speak the Spirit's engagement. We need to seek the Spirit's power. We need to humble ourselves, men, before the living God, dear ladies, before the living God, and say, I am in Christ. Now I welcome the springs of living water. I am thirsty. I am struggling. I am parched and I need the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to revolutionize my inner man so that my likeness may become like Christ. He transforms us. He moves in our hearts. He moves in our lives. It's not something you have to work towards. It's something you've got to surrender to. So I surrender. I surrender to the great theology of the Christian faith, but I surrender to the living presence of the deposit of the Holy Spirit that came in me at salvation, and I, I surrender my life to the Holy Spirit. Come, and I need you to be at work within me. I need you to guide me. I need you to form my character. I need the fruit of the Spirit to start to blossom within my life. I need to be a Christian that seeks the work of the Spirit, that welcomes the presence of the Spirit, that walks in the power of the Spirit, that spends time in prayer communing with God. And the more you commune with Christ, commune, the Spirit comes and transforms us into the likeness of Christ 
Christ. No more religion. No more do not go here. No more condemnation. But you are free. And I don't want to sin anymore. Why? Because my love for Jesus is so great that I don't want to dishonor him. This doesn't mean I can have greasy grace. This doesn't mean I can do what I please. This doesn't mean that I become an immoral man because I've got my ticket to heaven. No, it means that I am transformed by the power of Christ to be the man of God in the likeness of Christ that God called me to be. I become myself who God meant me to be. But it does mean you have to be willing to surrender, to walk in the Spirit, and to invite Him to work in your life. And what a beautiful supernatural life that is. That we are, are free, that we are transformed, that we, but according to the Spirit, we live according to the flesh, but to the Spirit. What is the Spirit doing in your life now? How is He shaping you? How is He working within you? How has your character been shaped into His likeness? How is He working within you? I've really enjoyed, I say enjoy. I've really enjoyed the journey of sanctification. I've really appreciated that where there's been the kind of Collins's propensity way to be moody, to be arrogant, to be bitter. Oh, the Collinses, they're Irish. They know bitterness. You know how bitter the Irish can be. I worked in Ireland. I went and cleaned a a graveyard in Belfast, and they said, watch out for the wall, it's 24 foot high. I got to clean with 200 kids, got to clean the, um, the graveyard. I was wandering around, I couldn't work out where the wall was. I said, where's the wall? This big wall you talk about. I said, oh, to be sure, Phil. You can't see the wall. It's not up above the ground. When they built the graveyard, they built it 24 feet down to separate the Catholics from the Protestants so even in the resurrection they had a wall that separated them. That's bitterness for you. Oh yeah. Do you know what I've enjoyed? I've enjoyed becoming like Jesus. I've enjoyed loving my wife how I should love her sacrificially. I've enjoyed getting rid of my anger. I've enjoyed getting rid of my ego. I've enjoyed not battling with turmoils that I've battled with all at different times in my life because of the work of the Spirit and the sanctifying work of Christ within us. We become, through great theology, we become the likeness of Christ and Christ meets with us. And does a beautiful work in the spirit. Wow. Time's up. But there's no rush through this.
we've got, we've got 10 weeks to do this chapter, so um, we're just going to keep going. I just promise me you'll keep coming back. You didn't convince me then. <laughs> Amen. The most pivotal chapter in the New Testament as the theology comes to this focus point. Let's stand together. Let's just uh, humble ourselves before the Lord. Search our own lives. Remind you of the word flesh. I guess if they were going to interpret it they, and they did attempt, they would write something like the inner workings of human nature that, that consumes us and overtakes us. The inner person that is so well hidden. The law was failed to transform our hearts. But the gospel transforms our hearts through the mega miracle. Mega miracle. And this is done through the mega power of the Holy Spirit that turns a sinner into a saint, a Pharisee, a playboy, into a powerful believer of Christ. So why don't you hand over your flesh to the Lord right now? Confess to him areas that you'd like to serve notice on in your inner flesh. Just start to choose one or two things that this week you want to surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit. Ask yourself the question, Lord, what area of my flesh do you want me to transform now? You want to work in my life. You want to do. How do you want to do this work within me? Change me. Mold me. Shape me. And as we sing this great hymn with the great truths of the theology that break out like a morning sunrise, ask the Lord to fill you afresh with the Holy Spirit. Ask the Lord to fill your inner person. You are filled, but you know we leak. And those spring of living water that come within us. I said last night, often what we do is we keep Jesus in the porch of our lives. We've invited him to our house, but we've kept him in the hallway. And we say hello to Jesus on Sundays. Good morning, Jesus. Let's go to church. Or Wednesday for Bible study. Good evening, Jesus. We're going to Bible study. But we never let Jesus into the fullness of our house. Into our lounge, into our dining room, into our kitchen, into our bedroom, into our basement and into our secret attic. 
and say, every room's available to you. Now come and fill and take residence. You know all those boxes in the attic that I'm afraid to unpack? You can come and unpack them with me and see. I welcome you into every room of my life. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit, to be filled by God's presence. Father, I pray that we would all welcome Jesus into every sphere of our life. In Jesus' name.